afraid I've really done it this time. My assistant quit. And, God, I'd, I'd promised the job to the girl who works with me. I mean, we'd, we'd been having a, you know. Anyway, yesterday afternoon, this woman came walking into my office. And I don't know why, but before I knew what was happening, I'd offered her the job. Her name's Brooke Reynolds. She's very shy, very subdued. I really am in a lot of trouble. Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996. You can read all of my written work at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. If you like the show that you hear on Around the World in 80s Movies, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast, very similar to this one, although I do occasionally do newer films, but films specifically influenced by the 80s and 90s. It's called To the 90s and Beyond. You can find a link to that at my website, quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into spinning off of the Brian De Palma films of the 1980s, the thrillers specifically. We're going to cover a little bit more Hitchcockian fare, kicking off this three-part series looking at Hitchcockian thrillers, of course, of the 1980s, kicking off with 1982's film called Still of the Night. Still of the Night is a PG-rated film. It definitely would be PG-13, at least today. It does have violence, sensuality, brief nudity, and language. The runtime is an hour and 33 minutes. The main stars are Roy Scheider and Meryl Streep, with supporting roles going to Joseph Summer, Joe Grafasi, Jessica Tandy, and Sarah Botsford. The director and the screenwriter for Still of the Night is Robert Benton. In Still of the Night, Roy Scheider is playing a newly divorced New York psychiatrist named Sam Rice. And Sam discovers that George Bynum, played by Joseph Summer, one of his most prominent patients, has been murdered. Bynum was the curator of antiquities for Crispin's, which is this high-scale auction house in New York, who engaged in a sexual affair with this woman named Brooke Reynolds, played by Meryl Streep. Brooke is a younger woman who worked with him, and they got subsequently close just before he was murdered. During his counseling sessions, Bynum told Sam all about Brooke in such vivid detail that Sam actually thinks he might be falling for her himself. And those feelings only get further reinforced when Brooke pays a visit to Sam's office to hand him Bynum's wristwatch, which he left in her apartment. Sam becomes subsequently infatuated with Brooke, but as he tries to pursue her romantically, he's also becoming frightened of her because she just might be Bynum's murderer. As the police begin to press Sam for evidence, he begins following Brooke to try to learn more, only to find he's starting to feel like she might already be stalking him as her potential next kill. Now, back in 1974, filmmaker Robert Benton and his writing partner at the time, David Newman, they were approached to script a proposed remake of The Lodger, which was based on uh, Jack the Ripper's real-life Whitechapel murders that were then fictionalized by English author Marie Belloc Lowndes before being put into film a few times, starting with Alfred Hitchcock during the silent era. There was a recent resurgence of interest in serial killers, specifically Jack the Ripper, in films, on television, on stage, 
a lot of fascination that grew from the psychological look into the reasons why people are serial killers. And of course, Jack the Ripper, one of the most long-standing mysteries as to who the identity was. Benton and Newman, though, declined the gig for The Lodger because they really weren't interested in copying what so many others were doing at the time. But it did give them an idea for a new kind of movie. They thought, what if they made a movie with a serial killer premise, but it would be set in the modern day, and it would feature lecherous men being killed by a woman, a victimized woman, who lures them to their fate out from singles bars. That would be an interesting twist on a time-worn concept. Their story would be set amid the hustle and bustle of the New York fashion scene, and they started working out their first draft for what they would eventually title Stab. They concocted a character within Stab for us, the audience, to identify with that was falling in love with a woman that he would later suspect might be the murderer. If you've seen the movie in 2020, kind of critically acclaimed for its sort, even though I wasn't a huge fan of it, Promising Young Woman, that seems to me almost identical to the plot of Stab, at least in its original phase. Benton developed an underlying theme for Stab based on the notion that men often fall for women while also harboring a fear of them that they really can't admit to themselves. He thought back to the 1960s, that was when he was madly in love with this woman that he couldn't find a way to make work. They ended up breaking up shortly afterward, and it plunged Benton into a deep state of depression. And during this time, while he was uh, licking his wounds at the home of a married friend, the friend's wife, hearing about their relationship, accused Benton of failing at his relationships because he was, deep down, afraid of women. The accusation stung, but it rang true for Benton because he realized that he was doomed to fail at relationships until he could find a way to overcome that fear. After spending a couple of years on it to complete their first draft, they approached a couple of producer friends with the script for Stab, but they turned it down for seeming a little too gruesome for them to take on. Before they could start working on a new draft that would be a little less gruesome, they shelved the concept to work on other projects, including their own next project called The Late Show with Art Carney and Lily Tomlin, while also performing a rewrite of Mario Puzo's script for Superman. Once Benton and Newman returned to Stab, they discovered that there was another thriller that was under development that happened to also be set in the fashion world of New York called Eyes of Laura Mars, although it was just called Eyes at the time. They would have to concoct a new setting to make it different than that, and they decided to change it a little subtly to the art scene instead, something that Benton liked for two reasons. One was because the art scene was antithetical to uh, the violent world outside, but also he'd always been curious as to what went on behind the scenes at an upscale art auction house. And an auction house proved a terrific place for a suspense vehicle. He just had to point to North by Northwest, which had an auction scene that had a lot of tension, so he knew that it could work if they did it right. Benton felt that being amidst people of material wealth and priceless fine art naturally brought out a certain psychosis in people. So they pitched their more humorous, more glamorous concept, less gruesome, to United Artists with the notion that it could star the late show's Lily Tomlin, perhaps. MGMUA gave them an advance on their writing for their new script, and Benton was slated to direct Stab during the summer of 1977. However... 
Benton had to put it on the shelf yet again. He was approached to do the script for Kramer vs. Kramer, which at the time was being developed to be a, a vehicle to be directed by French auteur Francois Truffaut. During the adaptation of this, Benton did end up directing it himself at the request of the producer, Stanley Jaffe. Benton's agent, Sam Cohn, enthusiastically encouraged Benton to take on Kramer vs. Kramer because he thought that their stab idea was terrible and that their new story direction that they were taking was even worse. So Benton returned the advance he received from United Artists in order to make Kramer vs. Kramer, but he did promise that he would return to Stab after he was free again, after which he also wanted to make a sequel to The Late Show called The Late Late Show. After the phenomenal runaway critical and financial hit that was Kramer vs. Kramer, it would become the highest grossing film that was released in 1979, Benton felt that the time to make Stab was now. Coming off of the intensity, the emotional drain of doing this really intimate family drama, Benton was really looking forward to doing something that was cold, analytical, distant. He also felt that it was important to not continue to do films that everybody expected that he should do because he feared he might get pigeonholed into only doing those kinds of films for the rest of his career. So he reconnected with United Artists and they set an intended production date for the summer of 1980. Stab represented something new in Benton's filmography. Benton in the past had been known as somebody who relied on a dialogue to propel his films. Unlike Kramer vs. Kramer, Stab here was a thriller, and thrillers tend to rely much more on visual techniques than dialogue. But Benton felt that this would really develop his maturity as a filmmaker. He intended Stab to really be a throwback to the kind of movies he enjoyed from the 1940s and the 1950s. And that was, of course, during the filmmaking time of Alfred Hitchcock and Douglas Sirk and Jacques Tourneur, filmmakers he greatly admired. And so he immersed himself watching dozens and dozens of films from this era, and he wanted to make Stab a ultimately a psychological thriller. He wanted to really frighten audiences by playing with their imaginations. So he rewrote himself, not with Newman, the script kind of as a cross between two classic Hitchcockian psychological thriller plots, Suspicion and Spellbound. And after watching a couple of other films by Jean Cocteau, Benton specifically wanted to have a dream sequence at the heart of his film where a psychiatrist would later experience in real life what it's like to walk into his patient's dream because his dream really was representing a certain reality. So Benton checked with analysts at the time trying to ascertain as to whether this could actually happen. And he was told by these psychiatrists that dreams were not logical at all. So really, they could be anything. There was no rational explanation needed for having this dream sequence that would ultimately play out as real. Benton also happened to learn a, a lesson while he was making The Late Show that cheap scares also have a great effect on audiences because he observed their reactions during a screening of The Late Show and he loved how the audience jumped and laughed during this one moment where the main protagonists open this refrigerator and a dead body is revealed. He anticipated that they would absolutely love Stab if they loved that scene because he was going to fill his movie with all kinds of cheap scare moments just like that. Now, delays did emerge yet again when Benton had to further promote Kramer versus Kramer. It was, as I mentioned, a huge critical success. It eventually received eight Oscar nominations. It would win five of those, including Best Picture. Benton completed his final script for Stab and then submitted it to United Artists 
later on in August of 1980. And several days later, Meryl Streep, who won the Best Supporting Actress Oscar for Kramer vs. Kramer, she was soon attached to return to work with Benton, at that time intending to play the character of a New York City waitress, as she was written in the script at the time. Streep really liked working with Benton. She had a very positive experience on Kramer vs. Kramer, and the shoot happened to be very close to her New York apartment, where she could spend time with her baby, Henry. The production for Stab was moved to November of 1980, pending a settlement of the screen actors' strike. But when the strike took longer to settle than anticipated, United Artists decided to push the November start date instead to March of 1981. Meanwhile, Benton did step down as Stab's producer in favor of Arlene Donovan. Donovan was taking a leave of absence as the head of the film literary department at the major talent agency known as ICM, International Creative Management. And this would be the first of several productions that she did for Benton over the next decade or two. Now, for the male lead, the main character, the psychiatrist, offers were sent out to people that were on Meryl Streep's list of preferred actors to work with, Paul Newman, Robert Redford, British actor Tom Conti. But eventually, they ended up striking a deal with somebody who was not on Streep's list, Roy Scheider. Scheider loved working also close to his home in Central Park West, and he would be able to bring his family to the shoot and spend more time with them. In fact, Roy's wife, Cynthia, got to play a prominent extra in the film. She's the brunette who sits next to Roy Scheider's character, Sam, in the auction scene. However, another snag developed. In February of 1981, Meryl Streep began to have doubts about her participation in the film. And rumors circulated that it was probably due to disappointment with Scheider's casting, but Benton came out quickly and revealed publicly that she was having problems with the script, and that's why she was having doubts. So Benton offered Streep a number of concessions to try to keep her aboard. One was that she could reconceive her part as she saw fit. Whatever she wanted to do within that character, he was going to be okay with. They also were going to shoot with so-called European hours, which meant no more than eight-hour workdays instead of the typical 12 to 18 that so often happens with Hollywood productions. And that was so she could be home to spend time with her baby. And she could also take time off for personal reasons, including promoting the European release of The French Lieutenant's Woman. So Streep agreed. She also got out of the bargain to secure a role for her actor friend, Joe Grafasi, who plays the police detective assigned to the murder case in the film. Now, to squelch all rumors of tension between Streep and Scheider in the press, she came out and said that she really enjoyed working with Scheider. He exuded Cary Grant-like qualities that added a touch of class to the picture. And meanwhile, Scheider also came out in interviews and stated that he too enjoyed working with Streep, who he found to be very bright, funny, and surprisingly down-to-earth. Scheider, Streep, Benton, all shared the same talent agent, by the way, Sam Cohn, who also negotiated Arlene Donovan's move to be the producer. So it really was in everyone's best interest to protect each other's reputations. Benton says that he, as a director, he often gets good performances from his actors, specifically because he's the writer, he's also the director. So he doesn't have to bully the actor into performing the part as it's written because he has the final say. Instead, he is willing to work with the actors to suit the part to their strengths. He observed that unhappy actors really very rarely give their all to a role. So if something was bothering them about the part, he felt he should do what was necessary to make them happy. 
Now, Benton happened to be accustomed to numerous revisions prior to filming anyway. He also further learned to involve the actors in the story process from working with Robert Altman, who produced The Late Show. And Altman told Benton that the writer and director work on collaborating to make a fiction, but it's up to the actor ultimately to make everybody in the audience believe that fiction. And whereas Hitchcock felt that the film that he was making was pretty much completed in pre-production, Altman disagreed. He felt that movies are written in front of the camera. So when his actors, Streep and Scheider and others, became interested in the psychological aspects of the story, instead of concentrating on the thrills of the plot, Benton decided to shift his approach to his storytelling to draw in the suspense through what's going on internally for their characters instead of going through their external actions for the suspense. Benton was particularly in awe after working with her now on his second film of Streep's ability to really build her character very much like a novelist. She constructed elaborate backstories beyond the script to guide her character's actions. So Streep built Brooke pretty much from scratch and she worked with Benton regularly to go over her ideas. Benton allowed Streep much more artistic license than any other director that she'd worked with previously and most of the background regarding her character's father and his death that happened in this film come from Streep herself. Streep also selected Brooke's wardrobe. She went out shopping with her mother. Brooke's ensembles, very fancy ensembles, came from styles that Streep observed women wearing around her mother's affluent town of Mystic, Connecticut. Although Benton patterned Sam Rice, his character after himself, particularly his penchant for being compulsively meticulous, he encouraged Roy Scheider to really shape the character to be his own. Scheider was known for macho personas in prior films, so the transition toward vulnerability had to be believable, so he was willing to work with him to go over what might feel right for him. Benton and his cinematographer, Nestor Almendros, who also worked on Kramer, they tied into the art themes of the story by drawing visual influence from famous painters like Piero della Francesca for his use of colors, as well as Edward Hopper, especially for displaying the emptiness and the loneliness of human figures amid architecture. In fact, right before filming, New York's Whitney Museum had a, a full-on retrospective of Edward Hopper's works, and Almendros noted while he was looking at his paintings that Hopper seemed very much influenced by cinema in his perspectives, so it seemed a very natural fit to recycle those artistic images into cinema again. Benton and Almendros began cycling through many more old thrillers to try to draw some visual inspiration for what they wanted to achieve. Jacques Tourneur, again, his cat people, Fritz Lang's Woman in the Window, as well as Scarlet Street in particular, plus others by Louis Buñuel, Francois Truffaut, and Claude Chabral especially. And after watching all of these movies, they noted that the best thrillers seemed to be the ones that were in black and white. So they actually contemplated shooting, stab, as a black and white film, but MGM UA, they would not allow it. In fact, it was in the contract that it had to be a color film. So Amendros did the next best thing, he felt. He would try to remove as much color from the film as possible. And Benton's approach to direction actually came from a comment made by Amendros that Streep, when he was shooting her, she should be shot like the moon. And from then on, the film's tone, he, Benton felt, should evoke moonlight. It should be cold and distant, but yet beautiful with all of its characters seemingly under her lunar spell. Wardrobes and furnishings tended to be gray or black or white. Images were subsequently stylized using Fresnel lamps 
for cruder shadows and starker contrast. And unlike Kramer versus Kramer, which was full of approachable medium shots by Almendros, he chose to go much more to extremes. He would alternate between extreme close-ups as well as wide shots to try to keep either intimacy or distance, depending on the psychology that he was trying to employ at the time. Production designer Mel Bourne emulated auction houses like Sotheby's or Christie's. This auction house is called Crispin's in the film. He crafted nearly 10,000 props that were based on photographs that they had taken around actual auction houses. Benton himself frequented the Sotheby Park Burnett Gallery in Manhattan for ideas, and he also hired its senior manager, Thomas E. Norton, as a technical advisor for the film. Benton also grilled Arnie Glimpshire, as well as Jeffrey Hoffeld from New York's Pace Gallery. In fact, Arnie Glimpshire, if you're really into films, that name sounds familiar. He became a filmmaker later. He plays one of the bidders in the auction sequence, and he does credit Still of the Night as the reason he became interested in becoming a film producer and director ultimately. Benton, as a director, he naturally liked to experiment. He was constantly making changes. He also performed many, many takes, trying different ideas. He wanted to capture them all down so that he could ultimately choose which way to go in the editing booth. He also performed extensive reshoots in order to incorporate any new ideas that did arise while he was editing his films that he didn't have footage for. Retakes for some scenes on Stab sometimes took place days or even weeks later, sometimes even changing aspects of the core plot of the story. Now, Benton felt he could get away with this because he was coming off of an Oscar-winning film. It was a Best Picture winner, so he felt he had much more freedom to take foolish risks, and he didn't need to fear too much interference from a producer or studio. Even if Stab proved a failure, so long as he was not arrogant or, or maybe flaunting his power a little too much to the studio, they would probably give him another chance, given he had that uh, Best Picture win under his belt. Now, unanticipated, he ended up employing major plot changes because Meryl Streep, when she was doing interviews promoting the French lieutenant's woman, started divulging a little too many plot elements of Stab, which is a big no-no in a mystery thriller, including that her character was a murderer. Damage control ensued, and that resulted in some last-minute plot revisions as well as additional tightening of the restrictions when discussing the picture in public. In addition, the psychological implications of Brooks' motivations through this film were completely reconceived so that they would be completely ambiguous, while red herrings were also added to try to throw audiences off of the scent. They should wonder all throughout the movie whether Brooke was the killer, regardless of whatever Meryl Streep said publicly. Benton, though, felt that these changes he underwent caused him to start to lose sure footing as to what he was doing with the film, and he felt that Stab would have been much more accessible as an entertainment if Meryl Streep did get to remain the killer all the way to the end. It would have been a sympathetic portrayal patterned after what Claude Chabral did for Stéphane Audran in several of his films, as well as Francois Truffaut with Mississippi Mermaid. Now, these constant mid-production script revisions on the fly eventually did take their toll. What might have worked for a family drama like Kramer vs. Kramer seemed to be disastrous if you're trying to make a taut and very well-plotted mystery. The actors began to struggle with the tone because they were uncertain as to where the story was ultimately heading, and Streep began to grow especially angry and despondent because she started to lose her grasp on her own character, a character that supposedly audiences were supposed to feel was capable of murder but also a character that had to capture the vulnerable and romantic allure 
of Catherine Deneuve or Grace Kelly in some of their light romantic uh, thrillers. But regardless of the reference points that Streep created to try to root her performance early on, she found the femme fatale aspect of her character ultimately to be just too superficial and her motivations too ill-defined. She hated that her character was supposed to remain a cipher and grew especially bored, bored out of her mind, being told to do just nothing but pose until captured in the right light. She was not supposed to evoke one way or another the proper motivations in the scene. It was supposed to remain ambiguous. As you might have guessed, the title did change. It wasn't called Stab when it was released. Test audiences were the reasons why they remarked that they would never see a film called Stab because it sounded like it would be a sleazy slasher flick. Even if it starred Meryl Streep, it didn't sound appealing. And meanwhile, the opposite side of the coin, the audience members that actually did have a penchant for liking sleazy slasher flicks, they seemed to grade the film lower than they probably would because Stab wasn't a sleazy slasher flick like they anticipated. So after a number of title changes were contemplated to reflect the mood of the film, they ultimately settled on Still of the Night because they felt that that really evoked that moonlight motif that uh, Benton was going for. Benton was also dissatisfied with the film's scores during test screenings, so he delayed the release date a few weeks to try to fix what he felt was not working in the editing booth. After the release of the film, critics, though, were mixed to negative about the film. They found Still of the Night to be charitably beautifully shot, very well acted, sumptuously developed, but ultimately they felt it fell far short of its promise in delivering adequate dramatic fireworks or romantic scenes or gripping suspense. They really derided the lack of romantic chemistry between Scheider and Streep. They felt that their characters were far too cold, too distant in nature to really spark excitement. Streep ultimately admitted sometime later that she didn't really always get along with Roy Scheider and that the tension between them grew over time, especially toward the end when it became too problematic to try to maintain the feeling of an intimate connection a romantic connection between them. And audiences pretty much aligned with the critics. They were not enamored of Still of the Night either. The $10 million budgeted film failed to make even $6 million in returns domestically. Now, Benton was particularly surprised that critics labeled Still of the Night as a Hitchcock homage, but not a throwback to 1940s noir thrillers as he had intended. So he grew very defensive in interviews. He claimed that Hitchcock, rightly or wrongly, he stakes so much claim to what was within the thriller genre over many, many decades that pretty much any film in this mold today seemed like a Hitchcock film. Benton also felt that the Hitchcockian label tended to work against what he was actually trying to achieve with Still of the Night. Audiences were expecting a grandly entertaining roller coaster ride of tension in this film that's really geared more toward suspense through subtle innuendo and understated implications. However, in subsequent years, as he was asked about it, he came to embrace the Hitchcockian comparisons because he felt in his re-examination of the film, it was an undeniable reality. He really didn't realize until he saw it years later how much he really encroached into Hitchcockian territory when he made the film because he wanted the end result to be a film like Tournur, where most of what happens resides in the heads of characters and not much happens outwardly, but... He did deliberately draw from the plots of Suspicion and Spellbound, he admitted that, but he didn't consciously realize at the time that all of the parallels were there. North by Northwest, Notorious, Psycho, Rebecca, Marnie, Rear Window, Vertigo, The Birds, which also featured Jessica Tandy, 
those are definitely there and and very easy for somebody to make the assumption that he was trying for a Hitchcockian film, even if he did not realize it at the time. Bentham began to look back many years later at Still of the Night as a transitional film in his career, and to some extent, he did grow unhappy about how it turned out, but he felt it was an important learning experience for him. With that film, he learned to leave what works alone and to just concentrate only on what was not working when he did make future projects. Benton also learned that plot-driven stories really were not his strong suit at all. Even on the best days, he resorted to relying on index cards that he stuck all around the walls of his office because he had to keep from losing exactly where he was during scenes. The cards would say something like, here's where you find the corpse in the car. Here's the love scene. Here's where Sam discovers something that links Brooke to Iris. Otherwise, he was just not able to keep it together. He was a different kind of filmmaker, and these were tools he was not accustomed to. With Still of the Night, his attempt here was to do something very cold, very analytical, but it resulted in making a film that was cold, to be sure, but it did fall apart in its plot when you tried to analyze it. Scheider would later refer to Still of the Night as an icebox movie. You fall for the plot while you're watching it, only to go home and open the icebox later, and then suddenly think to yourself, hey, wait a minute, and begin to pick apart the movie. Benton would later admit his limitations as a writer in not being able to solve how to make a psychological thriller right, and it did raise his esteem for contemporary directors that were better able to use the tools of cinema to engage audiences with pictures and music like Brian De Palma and Paul Schrader, who did Hitchcockian films a lot better than he was able to do here. It's not a film that goes on in discussions very much. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, when you're talking about the films of either Benton or Scheider or Streep, even looking at their filmographies, it very rarely comes up. But Streep does occasionally mention it now and then because sometimes uh, an interviewer will ask if she's ever done a bad movie, and Streep will often bring up, when answering that question still of the night, she does express that she's not really ashamed of the movie, but she wished that they had just simply aimed higher with what they were trying to achieve. She does regard taking the role ultimately as a mistake because she was really flailing around to try to find a core in a character that she really didn't understand within a story that she wondered why anybody should even care about, despite it seeming obsessively self-important when you're watching the film. The story really hinged on the audience falling in love with Brooke at the same time that Sam does, similar to how Jimmy Stewart falls for Kim Novak in Vertigo, but that doesn't happen for any audiences, and the story, without that, has no engine to carry audiences because Brooke seems more neurotic than erotic. And the best Streep will say about her experience making Still of the Night is that she liked the glamorous wardrobe that she picked out. One of the many perks is that she got to keep a lot of the nice clothes out of her appearance. So, as far as what I think about Still of the Night, well, obviously I'm more apt to like a Hitchcockian affair. I'm probably more charitable in my opinion of the film than people who made this film, but ultimately I do feel it does fall short of what it was trying to achieve. And I think that the ending in particular, the ending that may or may not have been what they wanted to go with early on, the one that may have been teched on because Streep had a little too many loose conversations about uh, being the murderer, so they decided to tack it on to somebody else. Well, if that were the case, that ending is absolutely terrible. What they did with it, it, it just stretches beyond belief. It's just an implausibility pill, just too hard to swallow. It doesn't make sense in so many ways. And that's why ultimately it does fail for me 
as a thriller and I cannot give it above two and a half stars out of four. Two and a half stars on my scale means that I do think they had all of the tools and definitely had all of the talent here to be a much better film, to be a film I could recommend to most people. But it does fall apart in its storytelling as well as its plot. And when you're dealing with thrillers, if, if you have a bad plot and you don't have characters you ultimately really care about, you really don't have any rooting interest except to watch it merely as an exercise in style and technique, which it does do well, but not well enough to overcome its many shortcomings in its characters and in its story. So two and a half stars out of four is the best I can give. Still of the Night. If you have your own thoughts, if you've seen Still of the Night and you have your own thoughts as, as far as whether it actually does work for you and the reasons why, or maybe you feel I'm being too generous to the film, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, Facebook page, my Instagram are there. Email is the way I encourage most people to get in touch so that way I can actually respond to you without having to worry about character limitations or, you know, even posting something publicly that I may regret posting later. So I do encourage you to reach out to me by email if you want to write to me. As far as the Hitchcockian film of the 1980s that I will talk about next week, well, let's go forward a number of years to a film that very much is much more embracing of being a Hitchcockian film, this time by another director of a, an Academy Award-winning Best Picture although it did come later. His name is Curtis Hansen, and he directed a film back in 1987 called The Bedroom Window, and that will be the film I talk about on the next episode, improbably starring Steve Gutenberg. Keep your expectations somewhat low, and you may actually come away enjoying the Hitchcockian thrills of The Bedroom Window, which we will go over on the next episode. Until then, thank you everyone for listening and joining me as we go around the world in 80s movies.